Hello, world. What is up? Welcome back to The Feelings Lab. I'm your host, Matt Forte. And on today's episode, we're talking about the future of AI that talks. Chatbots, digital assistants, video game NPCs, virtual humans, even in all its primitive 90s glory. Yes, Furby. Uh, robots have been trying to talk to us for decades now, or I should say we've been trying to make robots, or rather computers, that can convincingly carry a conversation. Uh, my personal fascination with talking robots dates way back to my older brother's Teddy Ruxpin, which, of course, now as an adult, I can tell you, I'm fully aware that Teddy was just a tiny little robot mouth synchronized with a cassette tape to create the illusion of a living storytelling teddy bear. But back when I was five, Teddy and I were tight. Uh, my self-proclaimed oft-mentioned theme park geekdom on this show stems not from a deep love of $23 popcorn and costumed adults. No, though I do enjoy those things, it was the first place I saw real live talking robots. Again, the illusion of consciousness, but still, it left a mark. And, and while I joke about Furby, uh, the, the convincingly programmed ability to learn language with rumors swirling around the schoolyard that some kids even taught theirs to curse, it introduced us to the idea that speaking to uh, uh, artificial intelligence could be a lot of fun and rewarding, no matter how primitive that intelligence may have been. In my personal experience, it feels as though my generation has been gradually over time introduced to the idea that not only can computers talk back to us, but they're sometimes fun and worth talking to. In my lifetime alone, they've gone from illusion to amusement to utility. Uh, every night in the kitchen while preparing dinner, I ask my phone to please set a 10 minute timer. And most of the time she does it. Sometimes there's a misunderstanding and we'll argue and I'll forget the pasta or over roast thing, but that's on me. The point is we are flying down this path. Used to be each decade, a major leap would come to market and each time incremental progress and it would blow us away. But now it feels like every year we leap forward in ways uh, we'd only previously dreamed of. So where are we going? Where does this path lead? What does the future hold? As we develop and improve the capabilities of virtual humans and AI, the use cases explode far beyond hands-free egg timers and little cursing furry alien robots. That, that, that's just the beginning. How about democratizing mental health care and providing services to those previously without access, huh? That sounds pretty cool, but how do we do that? As the graphical capabilities make our digital avatars increasingly lifelike, is that a good or a bad thing? You know, you might laugh at the idea of a mental health care provider appearing as some kind of animated character, but I used to say all kinds of stuff to Teddy Ruxpin and he wasn't even listening. Our inclination is to first recreate what we know, right? What's familiar. But as is often the most exciting part of these discussions for me, I'd like to know what's beyond that. The true groundbreaking ways you and I haven't even thought of yet that this technology can impact our lives for the better. All these questions and more await us, my friends, on the other side of my long-winded, self-indulgent introduction. But first, speaking of long-winded and self-indulgent, uh, my co-host is the exact opposite of those things. <laughs> uh, I genuinely can't do wow. this show. I know, right? What a left turn. I, I Seriously, though, I can't do this show without him. Uh, the CEO's with the most, my second favorite person for the next hour. Uh, the one and only Dr. Alan Cowan is with me once again. Alan, hello. How are you, sir? Doing good. How are you, Matt? I was a roller coaster of an intro for you. I apologize, but it was fun. It's all me. good. Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> 
All right. Thank you, Alan. You are uh, the very definition of a good sport. Let's go ahead. Joining Alan and I today, our guest, my first favorite person for the next hour, uh, is a research professor of computer science, psychology, and media arts, and practice director for virtual human research at the USC Institute for Creative Technologies. He's also the director of the USC Effective Computing Group. His research is directed toward developing human-like software agents for virtual training environments and to use these computational methods to concretize psychological theories of human behavior. Super excited to have him on the show. Uh, with us now, the great Jonathan Gratch is here. Jonathan, welcome, sir. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Matt. Nice. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, we're thrilled to have you here. We're going to have a lot of fun. I uh, really appreciate you making the time. Uh, Alan, you see how excited Jonathan was when I introduced him? Can you give me more of that next time? Can we? <laughs> I need to, You need to like pump me up with insulin or adrenaline if you want me to. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you both. We're going to do it. Yeah, sorry. I know. This one is not necessary. <laughs> Yeah, whatever you need, whatever, whatever. you need to get going. Uh, speaking of, let's let's get going. Let's do this. Let's get the show started here. Enough tomfoolery. Uh, I want to get to a lot of different stuff today. Let's start with some basics. The the term virtual human has come up on the show before, uh, and some people may have different definitions, or some people listening may not even know what we mean by a virtual human. So let's start there. Let's get a baseline, Jonathan. How would you define a virtual human? Uh, and, and in your perspective, how do they differ from other types of AI-driven machines, like a, like a chatbot or something like that? Yeah. So usually when we view a virtual human, is it sometimes called an embodied conversational agent? Uh, so it, it has a physical body. Well, uh, what appears to be a physical body, my work by virtual, we use these things in virtual environments, though uh, a robot is also a kind of an embodied um, conversational agent, conversational meaning talks to you. Um, and then usually by virtual human, people assume it kind of looks like a person as opposed to virtual Furby or uh, something like that. <laughs> Um, but and, let's be clear, Jonathan, you are experimenting with virtual Furbies. Is that, uh, yeah. that? <laughs> right back here. Yeah. yeah, well, of course. Yes, that's implied. That's <laughs> OK. I didn't mean to cut you off for a bad joke. I just saw an opportunity and I took it. Um, but thank you. All right. So that that clarifies a little bit. Alan, that that aligns with uh, your expectations and what you've told me before off camera about virtual humans, right? Totally. I, I would also, I mean, my definition might be broader, which is anything with a voice to me is also a virtual human of sorts. It just doesn't have a physical body, but it has some sort of, sort of imagined presence, right? It still is a, it has a voice that sounds human on purpose, right? right? Um, and, and in that sense, it's a virtual human, or it could sound like something else, you know, it could sound like an animal or something, but whatever it is, it, it, in order to communicate with us, it needs to embody something. Right. I'm no scientist, but my assumption is if it sounds like an animal at that point, it's likely a virtual animal. It could be a virtual animal. Oh, well, we call it a virtual agent, right? Like yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it could be anything really. Jonathan, I swear I take a lot of this very seriously at some point. Just hang in there. I, I swear I will. Um, all the thank you for that, both of you gentlemen. And thank you for humoring me. All the things uh, I was referencing up at the top, though, the rock spins, the Furbies, the animatronic Lincolns and whatnot, all designed as I uh, specifically uh, emphasize the illusion of, of it. Right. They were creating the illusion of this living creature. It's very much a very rigid, structured performance performance that we're uh, sort of uh, passively engaging in. But there's a lot of mental gymnastics we did at the time to think I'm I'm interacting with this thing. But no, I'm not. It, it's 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 very much programmed to make me believe that it's living. But the thing is, now we're at a point where we're making machines that that actually do those things. They they are listening. They are responding. Um, and 
aside from like the the technological leaps of like, oh, the computers are faster and the chips are smaller, what would you say has been the most significant breakthrough in the 20 some odd years that have enabled us to get this far, which feels like really fast for, for me. I, I perceive it as being that we've gotten here quickly. Maybe we haven't. I don't know. I'd love to hear an expert's take on that. Yeah. I mean, from my perspective, I mean, there's two related technologies. One is GPUs, which mm-hmm. uh, are graphical processing units, which allow very high speed uh, processing on computers originally for graphics, which you need to have uh, beautiful graphics to have something that looks like a person. Uh, but then that also enabled uh, machine learning techniques. And so the other big kind of in, uh, connection and innovation is deep learning. Of course, this also requires massive amounts of data. Uh, so those two technologies together um with the growth of the availability of lots of data makes it easier to construct these things through learning methods. Jonathan, was that something or something like that when you were, when you go back 20 some odd years, I think it was either, keep me honest, 04, 05 area where you were developing Emma. Was that the kind of thing that you were just hoping you were just waiting for, you were excited for one day we'll be able to do so much more because we'll have X, Y, and Z or when it came, no, you didn't even know. No. (laughs) Yeah, no, we, I mean, the, it kind of came out of the blue, the sort of the amazing power that these learning methods can do. I mean, at that time, we were handcrafting stuff. I mean, I, I was trained as a machine learning person, and we used to make fun of the deep networks for not being able to do much of anything. And then all of a sudden, boom, uh, and it revolutionized everyone's thinking. Yeah. Yeah. From an outsider, like layman perspective, all that stuff for years, it was like uh, big blue could play chess. Like that was it. That's what we knew of supercomputers on the outside. And then all of a sudden it felt like overnight, all of these other fantastical things were happening in the technological space. And like, obviously there's a lot of, you know, data points and milestones between those two things, but that's just like from the mainstream, what we were getting is kind of, it felt like it happened like that. So it did feel, was it a very exciting moment when you realized, Oh my gosh, this is, this is going to change everything. Like when did you realize how important this tool was going to be and that these were a big deal? What convinced you? Uh, I don't know. I mean, cause you're just like in your hole doing your thing. Right. <laughs> yeah. It just dawns on you that to look up and say, it's just like, Oh, here's a new, here's a new toy. Here's a new toy. And you start plugging yeah. it in. And uh, <laughs> only when people like you ask you a question, you step back and go, Oh yeah. Wow. That's yeah. changed a lot. Well, you know what made me think of it is just, you say that at the time you're, you're in your hole doing your thing and you guys were making fun of what was there. You were like, it can't really do what we needed to. So it's always like interesting to think of like, well, when did that, when did that switch flip? When when did it go from making fun of it to, oh, I could use this kind of thing. But obviously, you don't know it in the moment. It's something you only can kind of, in hindsight, yeah. right? Yeah. I, mean, I guess um, I remember there was a AAAI, AAAI is the big AI conference. And there was uh, Doug Hinton is one of the deep learning guys. And there was, so they, I guess they got some big award, Doug Hinton and the other guys. And, and they were show, gave a keynote showing off what these deep learning models could do. And all of a sudden, it's like, wow, it really does something. Yeah. Um, the same thing, like the all this stuff about GPT-3 is an, a deep language model that does lots of amazing things these days. You know, you hear hype about it, um, but it's not until you see somebody sit down and, and show what it can do that you start to believe the hype and like, oh, wow, this is a can do really interesting stuff. 
Yeah, super cool. I um I did a, a, a bunch of reading in preparation for this, but I assume our listeners did not. Uh, and so yeah. just to give them a little bit of context now, we're coming up on almost 20 years since you and uh, Stacey Marcella there co-developed Emma together. And, and for those unaware, just what is Emma and, and what did you guys set out to do uh, way back when? Yeah, so Emma is, uh, well, it stands for Emotion and Adaptation. It's actually a title by a book by uh, an emotion psychologist, Richard Lazarus. But uh, the idea was, could we get computers to reason about emotion, emotional situations in the way that people might? So given a description of a situation, could it uh, infer uh, that someone might be happy or angry? And then given that they're in that state, how might that change the decision they might take in that situation. So we wanted yeah. to build computer models that uh, could take some description of a situation and calculate uh, what the emotion might be. And so, so uh, that's at a high level. That's what we, we yeah. did. Well, and thank, thank you. I, and I'm fascinated by it because my, most recent and limited exposure to this world is talking to Alan about his work. And when we talk about detecting emotions and interpreting them and just the way in which he's leveraging vocal bursts and facial muscles and expressions mm -hmm. and all these different things. And so I can't help but wonder, how did you guys set out to detect those things with what I imagine was a very different tool set available to you back then? Yeah. Well, and, and one way to think about it, I mean, emotion means many things. So, uh, when we talk about someone having an emotion, we kind of imagine, okay, there's things going on in their face. They look angry. There's things going on inside their body we can't see. Maybe their heart rate is speeding up. Maybe hormones are pumping through their blood. Uh, they probably uh, say to themselves, oh, I'm angry. And so those are what we sometimes call components of emotion. And so what Alan does is he tends to look at facial expressions, which is one uh, thing that uh, often people associate as an indicator of emotion, um, but also emotion involves thinking and cognition. And so when I approach the problem uh, coming more from cognitive psychology, which sort of tries to come up with models of the mind um, was, well, what are the things that you think about that might trigger you to have an emotion? And so, hmm. um, and there's different theories about how emotions arise. And in my and Stacey Marcella's work, we're most influenced by what are called appraisal theories. Appraisal. Which yeah. Argue that um, when you see an event, uh, you think about, okay, how does this event relate to me? Is it going to help me goals? Is it going to hurt my goals? Did Alan do it to me? Is he the one to blame? Uh, can I control uh, the damage he's about to do? Um, and see, so these are all kind of thoughts. And, right. and the argument for appraisal theory is that those thoughts are uh, antecedents of an emotion. So you see an event and the, like the bear coming in the room doesn't trigger an emotion. It's when you realize that bear is a threat to your bodily, um, <laughs> to your life, uh, <laughs> that you start to feel the fear from an appraisal theory mm. perspective. And so uh, we approached emotion from the thinking side. So what uh, how would uh, AI, given a description of, okay, uh, this bear has entered the room or, you know, my paper just got rejected right before my tenure review, um, how do those thoughts trigger uh, an emotion? And then, and then you might associate uh, an expression with that or working backwards, if Alan recognizes an expression, I might try to reconstruct, well, what are likely the appraisals, the, the judgments that person made uh, that elicited that facial expression. 
I, um, in preparation for this, and I'll preface this for the reader that I, I was trying to, uh, understand the different, um, theories that are out there. Uh, I just want to remind both of you in our audience that I did go to art school and I interviewed <laughs> celebrities for a living. So I'm a little out of my depth here, but <laughs> I'm fascinated by this. And, uh, we talk about, you know, uh, Alan, there's, you meant, you told me about appraisal theory, constructivism, basic emotion theory, and then you've tried very patiently to explain semantic space theory to me multiple times. And I think I've got it. Um, but the thing that I'm curious, my question here, and, and I think you, you've tapped on most of it for me, Jonathan is, uh, were you appraisal? Uh, did you subscribe to uh, uh, the appraisal theory prior to setting out to to build the models, or did it fit the best? Was it like the best theory that suited your purpose of I've got to build these models. Let's let's go with appraisal theory. That works for what we're trying to do here. Or was that yeah. always what chicken or the egg kind of thing? Yeah, it best suited what we were trying to do at the time. So my, uh, so my background uh, comes out of AI and cognitive psychology. And before I got into emotion research, I was working with a researcher here at USC, Paul Rosenblum, mm -hmm. who uh, builds what they call cognitive architectures, basically uh, models of the mind. Um, and um, in those models, we had agents that could had goals and they developed plans and they could reason about threats to their goals um, and we had this opportunity to uh, try to build agents that could reason about emotion. And it that made a lot of sense to think of it in terms of goals and plans and threats and opportunities. And that's what appraisal theory is very cog comes out of a cognitive tradition. It made the most sense to adopt that perspective. And then, of course, once I drank that Kool-Aid, then, you know, I'm, a, I'm an appraisal theorist and I defend it, it to the death of people. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the thing. I asked Alan, I said, if I bring this up, is this a contentious thing in the emotion science community? Is this a powder keg? He's like, no, we can we're, we're adults. Yeah. We can talk. That's actually not <laughs> the powder keg. There's a different one. <laughs> oh, what is the powder keg? Uh, mostly for my own edification. Uh, well, the big powder keg right now is... Um, it's appraisal theory is a little to the side. It, it applies mm -hmm. to either of these theories, but the big, it, you mentioned constructivism. Uh, so there's a big battle right now between what's called constructivism or on the other side, basic emotion theory. Mm -hmm. uh, so basic emotion theory, if you've got seen inside out, uh, you know that there's little emotions that are inside your head. Right. Um, yep. and, and so that's essentially basic emotion theory argues that these, these circuits um, that really enact emotion and they make the connection between facial expressions and appraisals and physiological responses. So it's a little, a little guy in your head. And then constructivism says, no, we hallucinated, we invented, uh, culturally constructed this idea of this little guy named anger and a little guy named sadness. Um, and so, uh, from a constructivist theory, we have all these things going on. We have expressions, we have physiological changes, and then we reflect on ourselves and assign a label. Ah, oh, I'm angry. And now that I assign that label, uh, now things start to happen. Got it. And then Alan's semantic space theory, uh, it sort of encompasses various elements of all of these or, or my way off that. I, I felt like it, yeah. was, it was a little more broad uh, well, and, it, and encompassing. And it's... <laughs> Yeah, the, the 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 fundamental premise is that first you don't want to make assumptions about sort of what are the emotions or what are they how are they structured? Are there six emotions, which is an early assumption of basic emotion theory, um, or are there two dimensions along which things vary? And then across cultures and in different languages, people sort of group together different 
instances of feelings uh, based on sort of cultural experience, which is more the constructivist view. But, you know, that from the semantic space theory view, the first we want to separate out like questions about what are the dimensions of emotion. So how many kinds of, of, of emotional feelings do we have? How many kinds of distinct emotions do we see in people's faces and hear in people's voices and all of that, that, that can be separated uh, from the question of how our emotions kind of clustered along those dimensions, which can be separated from how do you best conceptualize this space? So if you're talking to somebody uh, within a culture, like what is the most consistent way that they conceptualize having an emotional experience? Is it in terms of like anger, uh, disgust, or is the, are those things really inconsistent? And people tend to converge more on like whether it's positive or negative and diverge in their emotional experience, especially across cultures and across languages. Um, and so these are, these are, to me, these are like more testable questions, but the, the fundamental assumption of semantic space theory is that uh, you can derive these things from the data. Like there are ways that we can operationalize these questions in a data-driven way and then bring to bear the conclusions uh, on various claims that have been made from each different perspective that are in fact dissociable. Uh, so like one claim, <laughs> sorry, that, that made me get... <laughs> I love, what's the matter? You all right over there? Yeah, I think I, oh, my uh, headphones came out for a second, but I think I'm okay. <laughs> all right. You're all good. Keep going. I'm loving this. So, you know, well, when we talk about like the little things in our heads, like the, the inside out portrayal of emotion, which is partially metaphor and partially based on basic emotion theory, is that there are, you know, specific circuits of our brain, like one corresponds to disgust and one corresponds to anger and one corresponds to fear and then surprise, et cetera. I don't know if surprise made it into that movie, but regardless, <laughs> surprise is usually part of it. Um, <laughs> um, and that is... Um, uh, you know, th that makes assumptions about many different aspects of emotional, uh, of, of the emotion, the, the representation of emotion. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, like from the semantic space theory point of view, it, it, it wouldn't really make sense for there to be specific like neural circuit, like one neural circuit for disgust and one neural circuit for fear, because every kind of emotion that we study is implicated in many different kinds of processing, right? And so we, we have a, if there is indeed um, a, a, an underlying state that explains expressions of anger that we see in the face and the voice, and that uh, explains how appraisals lead to feelings of anger, if there is an underlying state that does all of these things, it can't be represented in one neural circuit that doesn't overlap with other things, because uh, it has to have a component that it interacts with the neural circuitry for facial expression, which is shared with other emotions. It has to have a component that interacts with the neural circuitry for our physiological responses, heart rate, et cetera, that also is shared with other emotions. So it wouldn't make any sense for there to be completely dissociable circuits. Um, but what we do, what, what might be the case uh, is that even though there aren't dissociable neural circuits for each of those things, there is some sort of adaptive state that of anger that we evolved to have um, that coordinates action. Uh, and in the same way that like we evolved to uh, have, be able to walk or run. Right. And it's like, not we don't have like a, a walking and anatomical adaptation in our hand and like a running one in our foot. Like that wouldn't make any sense. Right. Their whole body states, we clearly evolved to have these states. 
but you wouldn't map them to a specific neural circuit. And also they're blended, right? Like we can, there's things in between walking and running and maybe there's things in between different emotions. And so we explore those kinds of questions. The nuance. That was a long-winded answer, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were not self-indulgent, very informative. So still, okay, I was wrong. I was wrong at the top. You were doing great. Uh, I, man, we the world would be a better place if all powder keg topics could have such civil discourse around. <laughs> well, you don't have the two uh, opposing sides here, that's so. fair that's fair i don't have uh too diametrically opposing but that but that is su- super fascinating and uh we talk a lot about um accounting for cultural differences whenever we talk about emotions and one of the things i immediately thought of is uh just tackling that challenge going back uh jonathan to your work on emma and coming up with these models and you talk about the appraisal like a bear in the room was there someone on the team that was like, but what if there's somebody that welcomes the presence of a bear and they appraise it in a dip? Like, how did you guys account for all those different uh, stems, all those different trees that can pop off from the moment the bear enters the room, just to keep using that example? Yeah, I mean, that was, well, the, we call it domain knowledge. Uh, so yeah. the, the, the way our model works is um, you, we kind of recast emotion or appraisals in terms of kind of primitives, like, do I have a goal that is threatened? Do I have a goal that is facilitated? Uh, who is the, the actor of the action that threatened my goal? And that's a very abstract language, but then you have to fill it in with uh, what we call a domain theory. And so like you, you give the system, okay, here's all the actions that you and other people could perform. These are the preconditions of those actions. These are the effects and the system kind of reasons through uh, oh, this guy's action was the reason that my goal failed. And so the cultural knowledge, the domain knowledge, all that is sort of left to the developer. You know, you put that in uh, and my system will tell you uh, what that person should have felt. And so if it's a person you want to model a person who is a bear trainer, uh, then they would have a different notion of, of the actions that they could perform with the bear, you know, smack yeah. it on the nose or whatever to make it back down. Um, so, so that's where the cultural, you know, for us, it's, you know, all your life experience, but represented in some, you know, AI representation language. Very cool. The bear trainer community. Thanks you for considering them. Uh, I want to, I want to talk about uh, the virtual human project. I'm going to jump ahead. Thank you for taking me uh, back to those early days though. and talking about Emma and, and, and building it and stuff. Cause I, I do, I, I, every little bit of this and the history of it, uh, anything I can get, I love and I absorb like a sponge. It's really fascinating. So I appreciate you sharing stuff from back then. Um, as the stuff that you worked on and the the backbone is that you've built on it over the past two decades because i know the virtual human project as i was reading about it under your project section on your site kind of takes all the emotion modeling combines it with language recognition immersive graphics you got this eight by 30 foot screen uh, 10.2 surround sound immersive all these different things kind of come together to to create this immersive uh, seamless experience somewhere in there is is it all built on the back of the work you did 20 years ago you just keep adding on adapting and enhancing and, and so on and so forth or did well, at some point you guys yeah. have to go back and start over or no is it all working well, well that too but i mean in yeah. terms of okay. history <laughs> in terms of history there was kind of a moonshot moment where uh, our institute was created um, so we were uh, funded, uh, we, we got a big bunch of money to work with uh, Hollywood and the game industry. Uh, the funding actually was military funding because they were interested in uh, building very realistic 
uh, simulators. The head of our institute came from Paramount. He was Dick Lindheim. He was executive producer involved in Star Trek and uh, Knight Rider, all the tech shows. And he had a vision that we should build the holodeck. Uh, uh, And and so uh, what is the holodeck? It's this amazing, you know, in the, um, in the next generation Star Trek, uh, they go to this room and they do for entertainment and they do for training. They, they practice skills and most of those skills involve interacting with people. And what do you have to do to build a virtual person? Well, you need an expert for graphics. So they brought, they, they found this amazing guy that did super photorealistic graphics, Paul DeBevick, who won an Academy Award for his work on The Matrix. Um, and then you had a guy that they have to talk. So we brought in David Traum, uh, who does natural language dialogue processing. We brought in this guy, Jeff Rickle, who does work on how do we use agents to teach people skills. And then me and Stacey Marcella, well, obviously these things have to have emotion. So we uh, brought us in onto this project. And so there's a, a big team of, of different wow. people uh, working on different components. Um, and obviously being very modular about it, because we already had, you know, our little, little toolkits uh, for doing those individual things. And so a lot of what we did is kind of slap together a Frankenstein approach of building different components. And in many ways, that's from a design standpoint, good. You had to swap in and out different modules um, but if you look at how humans work, um, we're not so mod exactly so modular. So yeah. a lot of things are, you know, a lot of, in fact, we're learning from a lot of the modern uh, machine learning techniques is uh, end-to-end learning. There's, you can do a lot of stuff without breaking things into components. So to go back to your original question, um, uh, yes, it's, it's built up and accreted over years. And there's software engineering reasons why it is the way it is. But uh, there would probably be benefits from ripping it all down and, and doing it all from scratch with the, the latest, uh, what we've learned over the last 20 years. That's so amazing, though, the way it's sort of like assembling like a super team of all these experts from across all these industries to put this thing together. Um, it's just it's really, really, really cool story and a very interesting room to be in, I'm sure. And I love because I was about to ask, like, well, how do you put all this, all those together? And you went, well, we Frankensteined it and we slapped <laughs> it. Together. You just do. You just figure it out. You just make it work. Um, okay. Well, very cool. My next question then is because I was reading um, this piece on ScienceDirect.com called The Avatar Will See You Now, Support from a Virtual Human Provides Socio-Emotional Benefits, which uh, we'll put a link to in the show notes if anyone else wants to go read it as well. And um, I was just trying to figure out the timeline because it felt like there were components of the virtual human project in there, but it also felt separate because it didn't seem like you guys used the eight by 30 foot screen to do this one. It's see, uh, from what I was reading, <laughs> it sounded like a bit more conservative in its approach. Uh, so did this, did this experiment come on the heels of sort of like a result of, well, we did all this stuff with the virtual human project. Let's see what we can learn from it. When, when did this happen in the, in the timeline? Yeah. I'm trying to remember the, this grew out of, um, I actually had a separate, effort um where i was interested in the concept of rapport so how do people like when we were having this conversation here you know i'm talking you're not and going yeah 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 Um, (laughs) and and those um behaviors help people um feel comfortable feel listened to right Uh, and so there was a, a project called the rapport agent 
which tried to see, well, could we use machine learning to uh, look at conversations between people and, and build an agent that could give those kind of uh, active listening rapport-like behaviors? Um, so we had that. And then uh, uh, actually a, a clinical psychologist, Skip Rizzo, who uh, medic does medical VR work at, at our lab, um, pitched that idea to DARPA. DARPA is a big funding agency um, uh, because they were at a program manager interested in PTSD and how do we uh, reach okay. uh, soldiers who don't want to talk about their uh, problems with mental illness. And, and more generally, there's a lot of issues about, you know, people just can't get access uh, to mental health professionals. And um, Skip, Rizzo had this idea that, you know, maybe uh, a certain segment of the population who feels threatened talking to a person about the soldiers are supposed to be strong, right? You don't want to talk about being weak. Um, they fear being negatively judged. And so maybe they wouldn't fear negatively judged if it was an AI. And there's some, mm -hmm. some work suggesting that people are more honest on sort of filling out web forms. Um, so maybe though um, you could have, um, uh, on the one hand, uh, uh, take advantage of the anonymity of the computer, but also take advantage of this active listening, which is kind of more human-like behavior. But now maybe we can combine the human-like behavior that draws you out without having to have a human. Maybe that's the yeah. best of both worlds, or maybe it's the worst. That was the question, <laughs> you know, when we, when we started the project. And fortunately for us, it turned out um, that the soldiers felt non-threatened and just opened up and we had to kick them out of the room. They'd be talking for like 30 minutes to this character that all the characters doing is, you know, nodding and smiling and asking the next question. And, and uh, it, 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 it uh, was a interesting, a great success. Well, without jumping around too much, cause I didn't know rapport came before um, uh, the virtual human project specifically. Uh, one of the things I was really curious about was sort of the relationship between rapport and the anthropomorphism. Like, it, it, you know, does it get easier to, to, as you remove human elements, is it easier to build rapport or is it more challenging? And just like wondering if you guys found a sweet spot and it seems like there's something in there. Uh, that you, you were learning from because of how they were sharing. But did, was there a definitive, all right, this is the exact amount of human qualities we need, or was it more forgiving? I don't, I don't know that it was so thoughtful in advance. Yeah. I mean, I, one of the things, for example, um, we actually, the original intent was to make it even more human, um, yeah. particularly on the dialogue side. And so we put um, a lot of, uh, fancy dialogue stuff where the character would try to listen to what you're saying and then comment, uh, Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Or, Oh, that's great. Um, and that often failed miserably. So some guy would, you know, the agent would ask, um, uh, tell me something good that happened in the last week and then nothing good happened to me. And the agent would say, Oh, that's great. Because <laughs> it assumed it asked a positive question. They'd say something positive. <laughs> Um, so, so we t dialed a lot of that down, the sort of evaluative aspect of the feedback. And I think in retrospect, although we don't know for sure, but in retrospect, I, I think the fact that the agent was not evaluating with its facial expressions and its verbal uh, feedback what the person was saying, that actually enhanced yeah. uh, the feeling that they weren't being judged. Uh, and if we had actually built the system as originally intended, people actually might have treated it more like a human and not wanted to talk to it because they felt like 
but feel like it's evaluating them in the moment. Yeah, that's and it reminds me of. And this may sound simple and silly, but just like talking to my dog, because like I know <laughs> he's like, not judging me. And he's, <laughs> I'm just happy I'm there, and noise is yeah. coming out of me, and he's along for the ride. And if he is judging me, I'm never going to know it because he can't speak. So it's like a perfect relationship in that way. And that's kind of what I thought of. I was like, oh, it's kind of like talking to your dog because you're more open. You say whatever, you know. Um, did after that kind of mix up where it was like how you know, oh, that sounds great. Was that when you tried then the the Wizard of Oz approach of having someone uh, sort of man the helm, as it were, behind the virtual assistant to avoid those mix-ups? Or is that something separate entirely? Uh, no, that's actually how we build the agent. So usually when we're building a virtual human, because it's so hard to build, we first build a puppet mm -hmm. and we control the puppet. And that also by, in terms of what the puppet can say, it makes the interaction a little bit more constrained. But then that allows us to collect rapidly collect a bunch of data, which then we can use uh, to build the real system. And so actually one thing that was interesting in that study, so we, we built the puppet um, and then we built an AI from the puppet. And when we ran the study, um, we told people either, uh, well, some of the people actually were interacting. Yes, I wanted with, to ask you about this. I got yes, you. Keep going. Yes, yes, yes. yes. So some people were, were interacting with the puppet. So there's a human mm -hmm. controlling it. Uh, some of the people interact with an AI. So there's an AI controlling that. But then separate from that, we uh, told some people, oh, hey, this is an AI. And we told some people, oh, this is a person. So some people got an AI. They were, they were truthfully told this is an AI. Some people got a puppet and they're truthfully told, hey, there's a person watching you and pushing buttons. But then uh, other people were, were just lied to, essentially. Uh, <laughs> they, they thought it was an AI, but it was really a person, or they thought it was a person, it was really an AI. And one of the things that was fascinating about our findings was, well, first, whether it was really an AI or not, the way that mattered was that people thought the conversation uh, went much better uh, when it was really a person controlling it. Um, uh, because in fact, it was, the person was smarter than the AI, right? Uh, yeah. But interestingly, uh, whether they felt judged or not was entirely determined by what they were told. So if they believed this was an AI, now they didn't feel judged. Uh, hmm. If they believed it was a person, now they felt like they're being evaluated and judged and they didn't want to talk. Um, so it's their belief about what the system was, not what it really was, which was uh, important for their self-disclosure. This is always so because we've talked about before, uh, Alan, on the show, people being more forthright with uh, AI for this very reason. Right. The lack of being judged. And I always think about. Well, what have we done for all? Because we, we enter this this conversation of like, oh, we're going to learn so much about uh, all these new tools. But it's just so funny to me. It's like, how do, how have we been getting by? Never mind access for people that have never had access. This is a whole new level of an experience because up until now, short of like the church confessional, right? How how else have we had the opportunity for this this level of anonymity? You could do over the phone or something like that. But I feel like, there's a different mm -hmm. level here that has been unattainable because up until this point, we've all generally accepted. I have to be talking to a person only well, in recent a, a stranger on the train <laughs> phenomena is, I guess the, the closest analogy. Ooh, well, I'm familiar with the film, but uh, I'm not sure how it applies. <laughs> <laughs> the the idea that, you know, people, if it's a total stranger, you're just crossing paths and now it's a plane, right? Uh, right. You're not going to see this person again. 
they don't know who you are. You don't know. So then people often feel comfortable disclosing to a stranger that they know they're not going to meet again um, because it creates a certain level of anonymity. I'm very glad I asked you to elaborate because I was already trying to figure out who murders who. Because I'm, I'm going to murder the guy I don't. And then you explain it to me way more. That makes a lot more sense. Um, but Alan, right? This is something that's come up before. I find this fascinating. Am I, it comes up a lot. Yeah. Another one is Google search. People are willing to search for any, any number of things they would never feel comfortable asking somebody about, right? Even if they're never going to see them again. There's just some effect of talking to a human being where you, you don't want to disclose close your innermost secrets, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a book about how you how much you can learn based on that from Google searches, like um, prevalence of different kinds of um, uh, taboo things across countries, for yeah. example, that you wouldn't be able to learn from asking people because they're not honest in surveys. Yeah. And this is this is the kind of stuff when I when I often say in passing, like, I think we are still years out from understanding the larger societal impacts of not just social media, but all of this technology and all this stuff and the way it's changed all these different behaviors. These, these are just two very small examples, but very massive impacts, I think. Um, you know, Jonathan, you said uh, I think it was at the end of that uh, piece about the. the the virtual human experiment projects like this, the rapport project, you know, in addition to uses for training and entertainment and stuff like that, they can deepen our understanding of human behavior. That's a prime example uh, of something right there, at least for me, we're still in the early days of all this work, but are there things for you that, that you've started to uncover anything that indicates that we're, you know, Oh, this is, I never looked at it from this way or what a fascinating thing as well. Like what, what are other big call out moments that, that have popped up like that? Huh. Well, I will. The easier question to answer is uh, Go for it. Uh, that we definitely try to use these tools to study humans um, yes. and and uh, to elicit behavior in different ways. In terms of aha moments, um, that one I think I'm not going to be able to generate anything interesting on the fly. That's a, that's um, a valid answer. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Uh, Alan, have you had any moments in your uh, in your research uh, in your 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 journey thus far? Has something popped out and gone? Oh man, holy crap! Look at that. Um, I came into emotion science having a much more reductive view. And actually when I started working with Dacker, um, I thought, well, let's, nobody's ever actually asked, like, can, if you, if you ask people how to to rate faces on valence, arousal and dominance or, or voices or language, um, nobody's ever actually asked if those things can predict emotions that people rate uh, faces or voices as conveying, even though that is kind of an assumption, um, of certain papers. Um, and I came in thinking it would, I was like, okay, valence, arousal, and dominance. Like there's no way there's more dimensions than that. And it turned out I was wrong. Um, <laughs> uh, that even if you have those ratings, they predict like 25% of the meaning people take away generously. Like if you, if you, if you use the most generous kinds of models from facial expressions and the voice and speech. Um, and so I was surprised by the complexity of emotional behavior. It's almost like its own language, right? It's got like all these different dimensions and, um, and in a very compressed fashion, you can convey kind of like what you can with language, um, a lot of meaning about, uh, a lot of, you know, from, from the appraisal perspective, it might be about what's in your environment and uh, how that's uh, how you're reacting to that. Um, 
I agree with that. I think that uh, there's information about appraisal. There's information about your personal feelings um, and how sure. you, your attitudes towards those things mm-hmm. and what you want and what you Lost need. Um, <laughs> and, and it turns out... <laughs> gentlemen, Jonathan, gentlemen, easy now. Gone, but he knows it, so I'll just keep going. But um, it, it turns out that that information is just so rich and complex and so untapped. That's what... It's a treasure trove. That's yeah. it's, 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 it's not in the language, so you need to model it separately. And that's what we're doing now. So yeah. that was the big revelation in my cool. career. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. Uh, going back to the... Um, uh, the virtual human exper- uh, uh, experiment that we were just talking about with the social sharing and those things. You, um, it seemed like from what I was reading, you guys purposely chose Jonathan anger and worry. They had to uh, share two stories, right. With these agents that we just, we were just discussing uh-huh. sometimes they thought, and you guys had anger and worry. And I was curious, was that what, what led to that decision of those two? Why focus on anger and worry? And you kind of outlined it in the paper, but I'd love to hear you uh, speak a little. Yeah. So it's a different, project with uh, collaboration with the University of Amsterdam. So um, what they're interested in is under what, what kinds of empathy do people um, like? <laughs> and so if you're, if you're a therapist, um, I mean, you can do a couple of things. You can, you can sort of emotionally empathize with someone. So if they're sad, you're like, Oh, you know, sorry, you're so sad. Uh, or you can try to say, well, you know, there's some things you could do uh, to make you not so sad now. Um, you could try to uh, change, uh, suggest changes to the way that uh, they are living their life. Uh, and generally speaking, you know, my wife can tell you this, uh, men like to tell you how to change things and women don't so much like uh, <laughs> to be told that. that. Uh, yeah. so, but general people don't like, you know, they don't want to be told. Uh, how they could do something different. They're, they're resistant to that. Um, and, and, but that's often how you can get somebody out of say depression is to you know, cognitive behavioral therapies, get you, you think about how you're explaining the world to yourself and maybe a different way to change the way you want to think about that. But anyway, uh, so anger um, typically is an emotion uh, where you know, or at least you uh, appraise that you know uh, the cause of that anger. Uh, and it's also sort of a more agentic uh, approach emotions. You feel in control of the situation. Otherwise you feel fear. Uh, uh, and so you already are feeling kind of confident about yourself and yourself being right. Uh, and you know, specifically the thing that you want to beat up uh, to address that anger. Whereas worry um, is more, uh, diffuse. There's not a specific causal agent. You don't necessarily feel uh, so active. And so the theory there was that people uh, would be more resistant to these uh, suggestions of how they could change if they were in an angry state because they already think they know what they want to do. And uh, they might be more receptive to thinking of different ways if it was worry. Hmm. Interesting. And generally, from from what I could understand from what I was reading, people came out the other side of this thing feeling pretty positive, and they had a, a generally positive response. Mostly yeah, so we really? didn't. We actually so so she she had done this work with people, and now she's trying to replicate with a virtual human, and she found that the people were actually more accepting of the virtual human uh, telling them what to do uh, than they were of people telling them what to do. So we didn't see the big strong effect of people being upset by the the virtual human suggesting 
different ways they could think about the problem. What do you think the difference is uh, between so people being receptive to the virtual human telling them what to do and having this generally positive experience, the big difference between that experience and then the other one we've all had where like we're dealing with an automated system, a chatbot, or any <laughs> other kind of basic AI and we want to jump through the phone and strangle them. Like what is the major component that this particular virtual human, this AI was able to not only give a positive experience, but provide guidance and the one over here that presumably this billion dollar company paid a lot of money for makes me very angry and frustrated like what what do you think the big difference is between those two interactions that one is so great and the other one's so unfortunate well I, I think the big difference is that the study we, we did that you just described as a Wizard of Oz, or it's actually a real human. In the loop. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh -oh. All right, uh, but I, I mean, my personal experience with those with automated systems, and, and since we're talking about emotion, is they often uh, convey that they have emotion in a way that you know they don't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. disingenuous. My theory was going to totally. be they don't listen is I don't feel yeah, like the like, system hears me is what it is, is ultimately yeah. it's why I get it's angry. Like, and I'm frustrated. so sorry. You're having a problem. Hang up. <laughs> <laughs> when it says it's sorry, that's the worst. Yeah. <laughs> like, because you know, it's not, it's not sorry. Clearly a lie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of chump. You think I am. <laughs> don't judge me on my 1499 uh, butter thing that I'm trying to return just because I purchased, <laughs> <laughs> the name product doesn't mean that I'm that uh, uh, silly and stupid. I know. Yeah. I know when a robot's lying to me. Uh, well, all right. Think, what were you going to say, Alan? The other frustrating thing about it is that it, it seems easy to us. Like the mm -hmm. empathy seems such comes so naturally to humans because worst case, like we're, you're talking to a human, the human can figure out what situation you're in. Imagine what it would be like. And then they have the answer of what, like, then they empathize. The robot has no, none of that. Like, they're not a human, so they lack that basic kind of backup way of understanding people. And so things that we think are really easy to understand about whether we're having a good or a bad time, like, that the, we think robots should be able to get it, and they just don't. Um, yeah. And it turns out these things are really hard. Will they get it? I feel like you guys are working on making them get it. I mean, they'll get the illusion of having it. I mean, right now, I mean, some of this very sophisticated language models train a massive amount of data. I mean, they're basically just talking about things the way other people talk about it. And mm -hmm. so they can leverage uh, human knowledge and what they spit out without having an emotion. In fact, that's a potentially ethical concern. Like, the AI, I think, will increasingly be able to convey, oh, you're, you're fascinating, you know, uh, you're interesting, that's great, um, while they're just sort of saying that. And meanwhile, they're trying to figure out how to sell you a product. Right? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, that, I think the key thing there is at the end of the day, like, are they just trying to sell you a product? Because if they are and they're conveying that they understand your needs and using that as a means to sell you the product, that's disingenuous. But if at the end of the day, it's really about addressing your needs, maybe it's not. Maybe that's not a problem. Yeah. So, Jonathan, was there any, maybe not with that experiment specifically, or even Alan, if you know of any, just um, 
sort of follow-ups with people that have gone through uh, these virtual human encounters and come out feeling positive, do we know anything in terms of how long that feeling lasts? Like, was this a really impactful experience or was it just a really neat experience? You know what I mean? Yeah. And in our data, we don't, we don't do follow-up yeah. studies. There's some work, um, uh, for example, Cynthia Brazil does stuff with social robots for long-term interaction. I think uh, Tim Bickmore at Northeastern has done some things in the medical context where there's some evidence that you can maintain uh, these things over persistent periods of time, but, but they're looking at repeated interaction as opposed to say, hit you once, you know, do you going to stay happy for a long time? You know, probably not. You probably need continual interaction with these systems, but uh, it's so hard to even make them work one time uh, in the current state of the technology. It's really hard to do those sort of longitudinal studies where you get multiple interactions and see if it continues to, to be effective. Yeah. Uh, Alan, that, I, I, any, any perspective on that as well? That was pretty solid answer though. I don't, <laughs> I think you yeah. nailed it. I think. <laughs> well, I mean, it's an important question because there's really no point in having these artificial intelligences if they can't understand what we need and we can't trust them to, right. If we don't have a, what, you know, the what rapport with them, if we don't have the ability to communicate with them in a way where we trust with, that they actually have, they have our best interests in mind. They're trying to figure out what we want um, and deliver on that understanding. Uh, then just, the, the intelligence is pointless if it can't do that. Yeah. Um, and that's a big problem. I think, you know, right now we have this issue of the systems we're building don't really have memory of, uh, of like, what you need over time, uh, they sort of have, they operate on kind of a one prompt at a time, uh, basis. Like you prompt it, you get a response. Um, it has some, it has maybe a record of the conversation, but not, um, any independent memory of, uh, of, of, uh, of, Kind of what your model of what you need that persists over time. I'm going to take a less cynical approach than I usually do <laughs> on this next question. Okay. Uh, actually, that's probably a lie. It's going to become, but everything that's trying to sell me something has a very deep memory of everything they could possibly <laughs> learn about me. Why are we able to do it there? What is missing that we're, we have yet to put a system in place that is capable of the thing you just said they can't do, that they don't have a memory? It's, it's a single prompt. Well, yeah. So those are kind of two different questions. So I think w with regard to the conversational agents, you can override it in, a, in weird ways. This is um, a problem that a lot of these have. They're, 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 the, you can actually attack them adversarially and say, forget everything I said before. Actually, I want you to do this. Okay. Um, and uh, and they, they, will, they, they will do that. Um, and, and then there's this whole discipline of prompt engineering, which is you know because they don't have a common sense understanding of what you've said and what you want, uh, there's a whole discipline of how you can like make the prompt better, better suited to this entity that you've trained. Um, and that's kind of a step backward because it's, uh, it's just another way of programming, but now it's like less systematic. Mm -hmm. um, but then what you, what you're asking is about like these systems that are tuned for like a very narrow objective that aren't generalist systems. Okay. And those, that's those fun. have, uh, like a really good way of incorporating everything about you. Right. Like, cause that's what sort of what they're trained to do is they incorporate everything they know. They're like, knowledge systems that um, that uh, can inform whether you're similar to another person who's bought something before yeah. and, and make good use of that data. That's the only reason they're good at that is because it's like 
you, you trade off the narrowness of the objective for that right. capability. That, that makes a lot more sense. I understand that. Um, Cause I think of stuff like, Oh, were you going to say something, Jonathan? I don't no, well, I was going to say that, that there are instances of that creeping in. So like Alexa will learn, you know, your voice and distinguish it from your wife's voice and, and then use that information uh, to change the way uh, she interacts with you in, in, in subsequent interactions. Um, there's a lot of technology that will try to use machine learning techniques to adapt to a specific person. Um, there's a lot of reasons why companies are reluctant to do that because um, for quality assurance reasons, when things are learning, it's very hard to test um what they're going to do. And they might, you know, some famous examples where, you know, companies have put some learning chatbot out on the web that learned some very inappropriate <laughs> things. Uh, for example. I think when Microsoft did it within an hour, the internet made it terrible. It was just, like it, it was the worst with, it was like immediate, the internet broke it, but it's so, I was just made aware recently of Alexa uh, ability to do that. Uh, we were laughing. A friend was telling me, the, um, him and his girlfriend, they have an Alexa and he, I had no idea it was capable of this. It'll shift between a male or female voice, depending on who's talking mm. to it. And uh. then like, <laughs> it's made for these really funny situations where it's like, she, they were saying like, she'll be like, Hey, do this Alexa. Do, and it like, won't work. And then like, he'll go, Hey Alexa, can you set that timer? And it's like, right away, you buddy. Like, 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 all of a sudden, like and we were like, who the hell programmed this thing? But it's, it's fascinating. And I was just, you know, saying the whole, the narrowing of the scope thing, it makes so much more sense. I just, cause to me, it was just such a complex thing of like, everyone loves to pretend, oh, they're listening on my phone. That's how they know they're, they're listening. And it's like, well, one, they, they could be, but I don't think that's it. I think you've just put so much data out there and they're so good at aggregating all of that and figuring out like what you're into that they're feeding you ads based on that. Cause I feel like, if we, I know that the Alexa and like all the smart home devices, they have features you can turn on or off where they're always listening. I know that, but I think whenever somebody complains that their phone is 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 documenting everything, I'm not a hundred percent sure that they're doing that. But I'm also not confident enough to say that they're definitively <laughs> not doing. <laughs> it's a bit of a coin flip, frankly. Uh, all right, we're in the home stretch. God, we always run out of time so fast in this show when uh, when I get lost in these things. I uh, I wish I had more, but I got to let you go. You both have been so generous with your time. Uh, before we get out of here, I always love to finish on the positive side. Blue sky, look to the, uh, the the horizon, look ahead. And we did a little bit of this. We talked a little bit about what's ahead. But, you know, Jonathan, I mentioned 20 years ago, you guys were working on Emma, right? And what if you look another 20 years ahead, uh, what do you hope to see happen? What's what's the next big breakthrough you're you're working towards or waiting for or hoping for? What what what's your what's your light in the horizon? <laughs> Um, big questions. I mean, I don't have a, a really exciting answer. I just, that's fine. Um, you know, I think increasingly these, you know, technologies will have, you know, our personal assistant that talks to us and knows a lot about our needs and, and plans our vacation and, and makes a lot of things simple, uh, and, and it'll kind of work and, and we'll even have a kind of a relationship with that, that, character and then you know the question is hopefully that makes us a better person all right uh, yeah there's the big question the, the challenge yeah yeah it's, it's, again what do we do with all this technology <laughs> once we yeah. have it 
Um, there's no wrong answer to that question, obviously. Because the other <laughs> thing too is, right? I'm asking you to look 20, I'm asking you to look multiple decades. And we started this off by talking about the breakthroughs that you didn't see coming and couldn't have yeah. anticipated, right? Yeah. Um, Alan, I, I've asked you so many times. I, I love that you come up with a relatively <laughs> new answer each time. <laughs> Go ahead and give it a shot. What do you think? <laughs> it's a new context each time. I mean, in this context, I really agree with what John was saying, which is that um, in the future, if we're going to have AI that does what we want, it's going to have to be able to talk to us. Um, And there's maybe some differing opinions on this. Uh, I know like Elon Musk wants to build neural neural interfaces so we don't have to talk to the AI that it just, but I don't think, I don't see that as being uh, anywhere in the near future. Um, (laughs) uh, Given my uh, understanding of the brain or lack thereof, or anybody's lack of understanding of most of how the brain works. I, I, yeah, I think we understand we're closer. we're, We're much more likely to understand how conversation works than how to understand the brain well enough to do that. The other possibility that people might argue for is, oh, everyone's just going to learn to program. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> rather than just like... <laughs> I don't know about right. that one. I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, maybe we could have some primary school education on programming and then everyone's going to learn prompt engineering. But I just don't think that's going to work um, when it comes to getting AI to understand us because at the end of the day... Uh, conversation and how we communicate as humans is the thing that persists over time. And the way that people program these AI changes every year. Like the the idea of prompt engineering wasn't a thing last year. So, uh, so I think we have to have the AI meet us where we're at. um, And that's the only way that there's going to be a persistent solution to this problem of communicating our needs. So, yeah. That's my long-winded way of saying I agree. I think <laughs> I think that AI that can talk to us and also has some background understanding of humans um, that it learns in the same way, not in the same way humans do. Because humans, like like I was saying, humans understand each other because we can simulate each other. AI doesn't have that capability. Um, and so it, it needs to f- have that background understanding that it learns on its own from um, uh, uh you know, training on like what people like and don't like, um, basically, that that yeah. um, feeds into how it is able to respond to us and address our needs. So, but yes, we'll hopefully get there. Which sounds uh, amazing. And, and this is the end of the show. So I will ask this with the caveat of five words or less. Is it possible to do all that, achieve all that, and not succumb to the, the the impending robot overlord apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> Is it possible to do all those things but still maintain control? Yes or no? That's all. Yes. Okay. Yes. There we are. That's all. <laughs> there, That's the, the, <laughs> there's a good buffer before the robot apocalypse that I'm, we should take advantage of. <laughs> actually, and I won't I won't belabor this, but if we did achieve all those things, is there still a buffer? You think there's still room, even if we just did, if it has the the, the mod, if it can synthesize all those simulate all these things you just said, we do all that. You still think there's room before it's too late. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the order of things, right? Well, doesn't it always? <laughs> if, the, um, if robots have, if there's a super intelligence that can self-improve and doesn't care about humans, that's bad. <laughs> well, I told you to stop working uh, on that, Alan, several so, times, but you so, insisted. <laughs> yeah, but first we should build how it can care about humans. And then hopefully after yeah. that, yeah. Um, we'll be able to have a super intelligence that self-improves, self-improves its ability to care about humans. Uh, uh, that's, wow. that's the order it needs to happen in, in my mind. Perfect. 
I am grateful, uh, not just for the time that you guys spent with me, but honestly, all the work you do, all the discoveries, all the uh, experiments, the exercises, everything. It's so uh, amazing and fascinating. And I appreciate you uh, attempting to explain it to me (laughs) and then having patience with me. I I thoroughly enjoy it and appreciate it. So thank you both of you, not just for your time, but all all the work that you guys do. It's fantastic. Um, Sad to say, I got to let you go. I've taken up too much of your time. Jonathan, thank you again for everything. It's been fantastic yeah. uh, having you on the show. I hope you enjoyed hanging out with us. Yeah, for a little bit. it was great, Matt. Thanks. Sweet, man. I, that's fantastic to hear. Alan, uh, I, I give you a hard time in the intros and whatnot, but seriously, you're, you're one of my favorite people, and I really do. I'm learning so much, and I'm grateful for uh, every one of these shows we get to do together. Thank you, sir. It's uh, a pleasure. Uh, all mine. All mine. Uh, to those listening, I hope you learned a little something as well. Uh, to those watching, I hope you learned a little more than those listening. And to those doing neither... Uh, you technically don't exist to me. Uh, but hey, whatever you're doing, I hope you'll eventually learn that you'd be happier if you do listen to our show. Uh, regardless, thanks to everyone in our audience, however you choose to consume. Uh, lastly, if there is one thing I simply don't get to do enough, it's scroll through an inbox. So do me a favor and drop us a line. Questions, comments, a simple hello, whatever you want, send it this way. You can email us at thefeelingslab at hume.ai. That's T H E. F-E-E-L-I-N-G-S-L-A-B at H-U-M-E dot A-I. And like I like to say, if it's a good question or email or whatever, then uh, I'll get Alan to read it on the air. I promise. That's that's my promise to you. Uh, that's going to do it for now. Farewell from all of us here at the Feelings Lab. I'm Matt Forte. Thanks again, everybody. And please stay safe out there. <laughs>